coaching after you've been doing it for a while. And uh, not as embarrassing as confusing uh, Belshazzar from Belteshazzar for an entire sermon. Uh, but uh, it's, it's still one of those things that you, you kind of recall <laughs> as a, a, a problem. Uh, but I, I just want to, a good introduction to this sermon would probably be the second verse of one of the uh, songs that Brother Steve just led us in. It's always interesting to me how when, uh, even when the song leader and the pastor don't coordinate, how often God the Spirit works out things. And so um, Habakkuk is a book where you have a very disillusioned prophet asking God some hard questions. Basically, Habakkuk looked around Judah and all he saw was evil. He saw corruption in the government. He saw corruption in the people. He saw people who no longer reverenced God and uh, instead they lived for fleshly pleasures and instead they lived uh, uh, without a, a moral compass and often uh, abused others to take advantage of things themselves. It sounds a lot like today uh, in the United States of America. Uh, and I, I have been reflecting on that about how many things were of great disappointment to me. Uh, just looking at, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I, I was a Ronald Reagan fan and he was a great statesman and a good way of putting people together. And uh, I have known, uh, I've known the younger President Bush uh, and met him personally and he was very uh, much... Uh, and he, his father, I believe, also kind of gentlemen and statesmen, and they made some decisions I didn't agree with, didn't like, but still they were gentlemanly. And I remember watching political theater growing up, and I remember watching debates. And uh, when I was growing up, presidential debates, they didn't interrupt one another. They were each given a certain amount of time to talk. They respectfully listened to the other person, and then they gave a rebuttal. And I haven't seen a debate like that in the last probably three presidential elections, every time there's a presidential debate and one person's talking, the other tries to talk over them. And I, I think that's just, uh, it's not genuinely, it's certainly not being a statesman, it's being rude, quite frankly. And, and so I'm disappointed in, in the debate process. I'm disappointed in the fact that when I was growing up, you'd have two parties that would each argue their own ideas. I didn't hear any ideas in this last election. I, I, I basically heard, you know, mudslinging and name-calling. And that's, to me, not the the way to find the best candidate and choose the best candidate. And then I'm convinced this last election was the most corrupt of my lifetime. Now, we've had a few corrupt elections. Uh, there was one back in the 1800s where uh, Congress had to uh, basically uh, decide what to do with the votes from three states where there was great corruption. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm disappointed that in a, in a republic where every vote's supposed to be counted, that there was blatant fraud this time in many regards. So it's, it's the manner of our elections. It's the manner that the people's voice don't get counted. You know, I don't mind if somebody wins fair and square that I don't like, but I, I do mind when there's, there's obvious fraud involved. But the point is our whole society has gone out of tilt. I, I never imagined anybody storming the American Capitol. But then again, I never imagined Antifa holding downtown Seattle hostage for nearly a year. Uh, it's just mind-boggling. Uh, I had someone call me this last week, and I had taught him in license to carry classes, and he was concerned about how things are changing and whether or not there might be uh, more riots to come, more unrest, more civil war. And he says, can you help me pick out a firearm? 
And that's what he wanted my advice on. And I thought, well, it's interesting that, that people are suddenly changing their views and deciding they need protection for themselves and their families. And when I look around, I'm disillusioned by what my America has become. And uh, so when I was thinking about a new sermon series to do, I, I've always marveled at the fact that the Bible seems to always have a book or a passage or a story that pertains to today. And I began thinking about my own feelings, and I remember the words of my own father who once taught me that if you can't teach something that you think everyone else needs, find something you need and teach on that. So I'm teaching this for me uh, about how do you deal getting by in a society that appears to have gone amok, and why isn't God doing something about it? I was disillusioned. Why didn't, why didn't the court cases make it to the Supreme Court where they could have dealt with you know, election fraud that we actually have video evidence for? Why did that never happen? Why has nobody been brought to justice? Uh, and uh, you know, I, I just don't, I don't understand all that. Um, and so I'm, I'm uh, and you know, now I question the wisdom of why are we impeaching a president who's not president? And I thought impeachment was for someone sitting in office, and, and uh, it just seems to me that it's a waste of American taxpayer uh, money, and, and he's, he's not coming back. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm just in disarray. And yet, so I thought about where in the Bible do we have someone that's, that's dismayed by his society and sees what God's doing behind the scenes. And I think Habakkuk is, but, but let, me, let me read the words this song, Brother Steve, led us in, in the second verse. Uh, it says, true and just are thy judgments, thy ways cannot be questioned. And by the way, when I think the writer of that song said that, obviously we all question God's ways, don't we? <laughs> we do that all the time. Uh, I, that's, not, that's definitely not what he's saying when he says, you know, your ways shall not be questioned. I think what he is saying is that uh, it's not that we don't question God's ways. It's that we, we, God's ways are beyond our questions. <laughs> we can't challenge God. Oh, you did that wrong. No, he, everything he does is perfect and, and right, and everything he does is, is correct. And so uh, I think, I think that's, the, that's the point that the, the writer is making. Uh, and, uh, but then listen to the next verse. Wisdom guideth thy hand in blessing and destruction. Now we always think that when we get blessed that God did it. But when we get judged, sometimes God did it. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Habakkuk. And then he concludes, great and marvelous are thy ways, grand and glorious all thy days. And beautiful song, in fact, is I, I think maybe while we're doing the book of Habakkuk, we should adopt that as a theme song for a month or so. Uh, and uh, I, I must confess, Brother Steve, that I am, I am behind on Patch the Pirate. And uh, so I, I did not know that. I'm going to have to find time to catch up on that this year uh, to, to catch up on my Patch the Pirate stories a little bit. Um, I would like you, if you would, to stand in honor of God's Word. We'll just read the first four verses, and then later on I'll get to verses 5 through 11. But let's just read what he says here. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Yahweh, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? How long will I cry out to you violence and you will not save? Why do you cause me to see evil while you look at trouble? Destruction and violence happen before me. 
contention and strife arise. Therefore the law is paralyzed. Justice does not go forth perpetually. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore justice goes forth perverted. Let's pray. Father, we live in uncertain times and certainly in the most uh, unkind and tumultuous of times that are in my memory. I remember the words of my Savior that in the last days iniquity would abound and the love of many would wax cold. And that seems to be the state of our society. Thank you that we still share your love within uh, the church and within the body of Christ. And Father, that here we can disagree but do so agreeably and all agree that your word should reign supreme in our lives. And that you alone are king forever. And that it doesn't matter who sits in earthly authority when we know who is on the sovereign throne over all creation. Father, hide, uh, hide my flesh behind the cross and help me to just preach your word to convey the meaning that your Holy Spirit has in it for each of us. May you comfort us in our study of Habakkuk. If we pray it in Christ's name, amen. All right, thank you. You may uh, be seated. So Habakkuk is kind of a pretty much an unknown prophet, uh, and that's kind of an interesting point is that uh, we don't really uh, know who he is. Now, a lot of prophets we learn a lot about. We know a whole lot about who Isaiah was. We know uh, about her, uh, Amos being a herdsman from Tekoa. We, need, we know about other prophets. We know about Daniel's whole growing up in history. But there, there's really no other mention of Habakkuk anywhere else in the Old Testament. So we don't know anything about his hometown like we do about Nahum. We don't know anything about his lineage like we do about Zephaniah. We don't have any information about the dating of the book. I didn't mean to just say about dating. That gives the whole wrong idea today. Uh, I'm sure he would have subscribed to courtship rather than dating. But at any rate, we don't know anything about really the, the date of the book within a few narrow parameters. We know it's before the uh, Babylonians uh, laid siege to Jerusalem. Uh, we don't have any real information about the audience other than that it was probably uh, to people in the nation of Judah who would listen to this message. So he's kind of an unknown prophet. But what we do know about him is that he had some questions for God and he had some complaints about the way things were working. And certainly we can all identify with that. Now, the, the big thing here in, in the start of the book is that he says the burden that came upon Habakkuk. Uh, uh, the word burden here is, uh, it could be translated an oracle or a message. It's, it's prophetic material. It's especially material that deals with a prophecy against foreign nations, which this one certainly is. Uh, and he was burdened. He had gotten a prophecy. He'd gotten a word from the Lord. He'd asked questions. He got answers he didn't like. <laughs> and he asked more questions, got more answers he didn't like. And then finally, in the end of the book, he decides to praise the Lord anyway, which is where we're, we're going with this whole, whole series. But he is burdened with a message that he received from the Lord. And when he got an answer from the Lord, an explanation from the Lord, what he got uh, shocked his, his sensibilities. It, it shocked him uh, a great deal. And so the burden is kind of the big deal here. And he had received God's revelation. It, literally, the, the title of the book in chapter 1 and verse 1 could be uh, The Burden That Habakkuk the Prophet Saw. Uh, and in other words, uh, he evidently got an actual vision here. It wasn't just that he heard God's word or that he understood it in his heart. But God gave him a look into the history that was yet to come. 
and the word saw, when used as the prophets, means to see in a vision. It's used numerous times uh, throughout Scripture. So one of the things that happened to a lot of prophets uh, is they did receive visions. Uh, they, they were sometimes, uh, that's why prophets were often called seers, because they had, had received a vision, they received a, a vision of what was to come. And even in the New Testament, you remember that Peter was having a dream and a sheet was lowered and had all these unclean animals in it. And, and uh, there was a vision and God had a message for that. Now today, if someone tells you to have a vision, I think you need to beware of them. Uh, because the revelation of God is complete. The Old and New Testament canons are closed. And uh, as Brother Steve pointed out this morning, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. We don't need anything else. We've got everything the Bible says that we need for life and godliness in the Word of God. We don't need churches uh, holding uh, sacraments for us. We don't need people saying that they have a vision. Um, Judy and I, a few years back now, uh, met with a young lady who had come to talk to us. Uh, uh, who was um, attending one of the Indian congregations back then, and I don't think she is any longer. Uh, but uh, we had uh, terminated a courtship for one of our daughters, and uh, she basically came and told us that she'd had a vision from the Lord that uh, that courtship was to go on and that that's who our daughter should marry. And, of course, that was wrong, and we knew it was wrong, and the young man did not have the appropriate character to marry my daughter, and then God brought someone else later. Uh, so beware when people take you have visions. And anything anybody tells you, if they just think, well, I have a word from the Lord, or even if they tell you, I've got an idea for your life, go check it against the Bible. Because it is the word of God that's printed in black and white for our benefit that is the final rule of faith and practice. And that's the only rule of faith and practice that we have. And I, by the way, I really appreciate Brother Steve Handel Day. One of the more difficult passages in 2 Corinthians this morning where Paul basically is speaking with apostolic authority, but it's something he had not received a direct revelation from Jesus Christ about. But it's still part of inspired scripture. If it wasn't inspired, it wouldn't be in the Bible. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, by the way, a lot of other churches do add books to their, their Bible. There's the, uh, the Apocrypha, okay? But you will notice that churches that use the Apocrypha don't call it the Apocrypha. Apocrypha basically means fictional books. Uh, and even the people who compiled the Apocrypha said that it wasn't Scripture. It was used for illustrative purposes. It was never meant to be part of Scripture. And yet today, the Greek Orthodox and church and others that use that, they do not refer to it as the Apocrypha. They call it the Deuterocanon, meaning the second canon. And they call it a canon because it makes it sound official. It's not official. It's fictitious. Uh, it doesn't jive with history. It doesn't jive with the other 66 books of the Bible. And so that's why it was not included uh, in, in the scriptural canon. But we don't need visions anymore because we do have those 66 books that are perfect and complete. Now, oracles or revelations from God that were recorded in the Old Testament for us often happen because a person or persons in the prophet's community would go and seek the prophet's wisdom about something, ask him if he had a word from the Lord, and the prophet would pray and he would get that, that word from the Lord and he would, he would speak that oracle to the community and it was recorded and it was placed in scripture. So God gives the prophet an oracle or a revelation as a response. This is how a lot of the Old Testament 
uh, prophets and minor prophets came to being as their response to, to questions or a response to prayers. And so an oracle is thus based on revelation concerning divine action that is yet to come. And the oracle can either give insight into the future or give directions to the audience uh, about what they need to be doing now. So in other words, it could be, here's what's going to happen, and, and, here's, and they might also say, here's what you need to do in light of what's going to happen, or here's how you avoid judgment. Now, there's bad news in Habakkuk, and the news is uh, Habakkuk presents the beginning bad news. Everything around me is corrupt and evil. Uh, but then God gives them more bad news. Judgment's on the way. Judgment's on the way. And, and what really blows Habakkuk's mind when we get down to verses 5 through 11 is God's going to tell him it's the Chaldeans, which is another name for the Babylonians. It's the Babylonians that are going to come and judge uh, the nation of Judah. And they were notoriously wicked, notoriously vicious, notoriously ungodly. And Habakkuk's next question, which we'll get to in the next sermon, is how can you, a righteous and holy God, use an unrighteous people to judge your nation of Judah? That's a good question. And, and I'm seeing similarities today. How can unrighteous people in, and, and, and cheaters and manipulators and people that don't care uh, about us or care about the law or care about the Constitution suddenly be in charge uh, of our government in the thing is, God uses unrighteous people at times to accomplish his will. So there's some old questions that we're still asking today. Uh, the prophet had a long-standing concern which evolved into this burst of complaint out to the Lord. By the way, we all know that we shouldn't complain to God, right? We should be thankful for everything we have. But isn't it wonderful we have a God who listened to our complaints? After uh, the children of Israel... Uh, were defeated at the battle of Ai in the book of Joshua. It says, and Joshua laid on the ground and poured out his complaint before the Lord. Uh, I'm glad, you know, I, I'm a little scared to complain because I feel like a lightning bolt's going to zap me. But God is gracious to us and we're his children and he is tolerant of us when we ask complaints and he wants us to look for answers. So first Habakkuk wanted to know, God, why are you so indifferent to all this evil around me? And why aren't you hearing me? when I pray for you to do something about it. Uh, one of the problems I have when I pray for God to resolve a situation is God doesn't answer on my time frame. Now, he does answer. He just doesn't do it when Robert thinks he should do it. And that's a problem for me, especially when I work in a world where people press a button and they get a, a printout or they get a report or they get an action that's automated and we get answers in seconds. I think sometimes my occupation helps lead me to be more impatient in some regards. So, and then second, he wanted to know why God seems so insensitive. God, don't you even care about how wicked it is down here? Don't you even care about how the righteous are suffering at the hands of the wicked? How long, he says three times, how long is this going to go on? How long are you going to ignore this? And over and over again, it's like, God, you're delaying and doing what you need to do. 
And I think we have this problem a lot today is we believe that God delays in his answer. A loved one gets sick and you pray for him to get well and it seems like God delays in his answer. You got a problem with a child and you pray for that uh, problem to be resolved so they can live a normal life and God delays in his answer. Your daughter gets an autoimmune disease and she's in constant pain and you keep praying for her to get well and God delays in his answer. And you, you wonder why God seems silent when you're, you're praying. So Habakkuk's complaints, first of all, is that there's injustice. It's, it's rampant around him. It's, it, the things that should have been resolved in a court and people that should have been punished and actions that should have been taken never happened. And it's how long and why. And he keeps asking those two questions throughout the book of Habakkuk. You'll see them uh, again uh, later in chapter 1, also in chapter 2, these, these questions about how long is this going to go on? Why have you let it go unchecked? And he cried out to God. He says, there's violence. So it's almost as he just shouts the word violence. It's kind of like, God, there's violence everywhere, but you're not doing anything. The word violence basically sums up everything that Habakkuk was seeing around him, and that word is used multiple times in chapter 1 and also in chapter 2. And they're like ink blots on, on a, a crumpled page in history. Now, so Habakkuk then asked the question, God, why are you tolerating injustice? Sin is abounding. God, seem, you seem indifferent and you idle. And then Habakkuk put the, kind of puts the blame on God and he asked this question, why do you make me look at injustice and you're not doing anything about it? I have to see it. I have to live with it. I'm surrounded by it. You're up there somewhere in heaven, and you don't seem to be bothered, but I'm down here with it all the time. What are you going to do about that? And then he says, and why, if you're a holy God, do you tolerate wrong? Why do you tolerate uh, injustice? Uh, The word injustice literally is iniquity. Iniquity is any time people do their own way instead of God's way. So sin is an outright violation of when God's commands. But iniquity is simply when we live life our own way. And that may indeed be sin. Sometimes it's just not doing things the way God wants them done. And it's, it's kind of the spirit of the book of Judges when it says every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's iniquity. It's when we do what's right in our own eyes. And, you know, it's bad enough that a weak sinner has to behold wickedness. But to have a righteous God... See the evil and do nothing about it was beyond Habakkuk's comprehension. And, and uh, you know, I've asked myself the question recently, why are the wicked going unpunished? Why has nothing been resolved? Why, when there's blatant evidence of something, is no justice uh, coming uh, at hand? So it's a bleak picture. Destruction and violence then are coupled with strife and conflict. Well, we've certainly seen that. We saw it in the U.S. Capitol. We've seen it in Seattle. We've seen it around our nation. We've seen, you know, a, a cop that has to maybe use his firearm in self-defense in, in a perfectly legitimate way, and then he gets death threats and he gets fired, and, and there's backlash and there's riots and buildings burn and storefronts are uh, broken through and looted, and it's just, uh, you know, it's like we've come unhinged as, as a society. And, and again, he, he talks about this in verse 2 and in verse 9 and in chapter 2 and verse 17. And then uh, he says there's destruction. The Hebrew word sowed here means a violent treatment causing desolation. And uh, even now, if you go and look at downtown Seattle, it doesn't, 
uh, it doesn't bear any resemblance to what downtown Seattle used to look like. I mean, you used to go, could walk from one, one Starbucks to the other in downtown Seattle, not have to go more than a few blocks uh, to, to do that, and it would be rather scenic. You wouldn't even want to walk through that neighborhood uh, today. It, it looks like a war zone. Uh, a few years ago, I, I was in uh, working at the Ford uh, Motor Company in uh, Dearborn, Michigan. It's just outside of uh, Detroit. And uh, after work one day, I went looking for, I don't know, uh, a pharmacy, or maybe I was just looking for a place to eat, and I thought, I'll drive down this street. And within two minutes away from the Ford Motor Company plant, it looked like I had driven into a Middle East war zone. Uh, there were Arabic inscriptions everywhere. There were uh, boarded up uh, school buildings that uh, had all the windows shuttered. They had uh, chain link fences with barbed wire up at the top. Uh, there were burnout cars on the street. And I thought, how does this happen in the United States of America? And it really did. It looked like a Middle East uh, war zone because the people that, that came there brought a culture with them that was devoid of any reference to a thrice holy God. Uh, and they had, no, uh, they had no moral compass. Now, interesting enough, by the way, this word violence is the word Hamas. Now, you've probably heard of Hamas before. And uh, so they basically have a name uh, in Hebrew that means violence. It's malicious conduct intended to injure another. And certainly that's what Hamas has been guilty of for many years now. Uh, it's violence and oppression. In, in Amos, it, it's translated plunder and loot, uh, although the, the words are in Sod and Hamas are in a different order in Amos. But Habakkuk described the condition well. It was violent treatment designed to hurt others. It was malicious conduct intended to injure others. Uh, it was plundering. It was looting. And certainly we've seen that in our own society in, in the last uh, 12 to 18 months, maybe longer than that now. And the people were affected. Uh, you know, the greatest tragedy is that people are neglecting God's law. They're, they aren't paying any attention to it. This is the big problem in Judah right now is people are neglecting God's law. It, uh, just, uh, just an insight, and I'm not complaining. Uh, I, I've tried to think as a pastor how I feel about this. You know, we've got reduced numbers in here. Uh, we've, we've about a fourth of what we used to be, thanks to the coronavirus. We do have people listening online, but I take comfort the fact we now have a second Indian congregation worshiping here. The, the drone you hear behind me is the baptistry pump circulating the water to keep it warm. Uh, they'll be here at 145, and if you hang around, you can watch three people being baptized in our, our Indian congregation. Judy and I are going to be staying for that. Uh, and so I'm, I'm blessed to be a part of it, and I'm blessed that we have three mission churches that meet here and that they're reaching people for Christ. That's part of it. Uh, I told Brother Steve last week that uh, even though we feel like we're speaking to a small number of people, that uh, within an hour... Uh, about five times in a row of me posting one of his Sunday school lessons, 40 people had downloaded the lesson. So we're speaking to a larger online group than we are here. Uh, and uh, I'll just have to share from my own fleshliness that uh, I went and checked. People are not downloading me as often as they're downloading Brother Steve. So uh, he's, he's got something people like. So you're marketable uh, as public speaker, I guess. Uh, but I, we're, I'm so thankful for his teaching. But l listen to what Habakkuk describes here. Uh, he says, the law is paralyzed. In other words, there is a law. The law enforces righteousness, but it's become cool. It's become numbed. It's not acting. 
And if there's anything I noticed about the last few weeks is that the law became paralyzed. Uh, people weren't punished as they should have been. Uh, consequences didn't happen for uh, gross injustices. Uh, even some of the people that uh, took downtown Seattle have never been prosecuted. They've never been brought to justice. Our law has become paralyzed. And to the point that it seems to be useless, civic justice, Habakkuk says, never prevails. It never comes forth to fight. The injustice is there and the law never stands up against it. So it appears that it's like justice and Injustice got in the ring and the uncontested victor was wickedness. And then the wickedness hems in the righteous. And it's as though the righteous are locked up and they're being put away and the keys being thrown away. Uh, I thought it was interesting that within 24 hours of Biden becoming president that Congress is already trying to pass hate crime legislation. And basically they're trying to say that... Uh, People who were Trump supporters, and they, they list a bunch of characteristics they have, are therefore guilty of hate crimes. They're trying to say that for us, if we, you know, we worship scripture and we carry a firearm, maybe we have some ammunition at the house, that maybe we're guilty of hate crimes. And we, we're going to get to the place where, like Canada, you can't speak out against sodomy or homosexuality because that'll be a hate crime. Uh, you're, you're forced to acknowledge gay marriages. Uh, if you don't, then that's a, a hate crime. And so uh, it's interesting that we're even considering this, and I pray to God none of that comes to pass. But I feel like the wicked are trying to hem in uh, the righteous. And justice was perverted. The, the Hebrew word ekal here means to bend or twist out of a shape. And this is the only time it's used here in the Old Testament. So with wicked men in power, justice is twisted and turned till it comes out injustice. By the way, we've had laws passed over not just the last year, but over the last few decades now, where injustice becomes tolerated and sometimes uh, glorified, and justice uh, is, is frowned upon, uh, where godliness and righteousness is frowned upon and it's discriminated against. So the people were affected. So Habakkuk pours out his first question, why aren't you doing anything and why do you tolerate this mess? And now God's going to give him the first of a series of answers. And we're only going to look at the first question and answer this morning. But the first thing to know is God does know what's going on. He's not blind to it. And he does care. It's just that we have to remember he doesn't work on our time frame. Uh, but the, the, this is called a, a lament. When a prophet goes off and starts talking about how bad things are, it's a lament. We have one whole book of the Bible written by Jeremiah there's called lamentations because it's one lament after another for the wickedness of men. But it, it, even in that book, it says it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We, we get to look at the fact that God is faithful even when there's a lot to lament about. Uh, so the Lord is not indifferent. He's not insensitive. He's not idle. He already has a plan. He's already working on it. He's going to discipline an erring nation, and he reveals those plans to a distressed prophet. And so he gets started on that in verse 5. And so he talks about that. Let's see. There we go. So first of all, he expresses his intent to discipline. Look what he says. Look, he gives some commands here, which I've highlighted in bold. Look among the nations and see. The word see can mean watch. Be astonished and astounded. And then he tells Habakkuk why he's going to be astonished and astounded. For a work is about to be done in your days that you would not believe if it is told. 
He says, I'm about to do something, and when it happens, you're not even going to believe it. It's going to be such a big deal. So I, am, I do have a plan. Look at the nations and watch. Now, by the way, it's interesting in, in Hebrew and in Greek for that matter, that we can designate how many people are being talked to in the verb form. So when he says look and watch, he's not just talking to a single individual, Habakkuk. He's talking to a group of people. He's talking to the people that raised the initial question and complaint to Habakkuk, and he's talking to Habakkuk too. He's talking to the prophet and the people, and, and he's saying look at the nations, that is the ungodly nations around you, and watch. See, Habakkuk had complained about being made to look at injustice around him, but the prophet and the people had myopia. They were nearsighted. Habakkuk's all his complaints are about how messed up Judah is. And God says, you better start looking at the other nations around you. That's where you're going to see me start doing stuff. And by the way, he's going to tell us in a moment, he's going to bring the Babylonians to judge Judah. And I wonder right now, as we're focused on all the mess here, if we shouldn't be looking at what's happening in China. <laughs> if we shouldn't be looking at how we just damaged relationships with Canada and they're already complaining because 11,000 people lost their jobs when President Biden did away with the XL pipeline with a stroke of his pen. Or how uh, there's other nations that are, are seeking our, our destruction and now we're not going to have someone who's strong and tough to stand up to them. Um, He's talking to both the people. They've become nearsighted. And, and God's saying, get your eyes off the immediate havoc and look out internationally because that's where you're going to see me do something. And you need to develop a new worldview that includes the whole world, the nations. We need to open up and quit worrying about just being comfortable here and, and having things go smoothly here and having our wages go up here and having our 401ks populated here. We need to start seeing the needs of the nations around us. And if you really take your eyes off of yourselves and look internationally, you will be utterly amazed at what I'm doing. So the political development is about to be revealed and Habakkuk and the people would stun them. The word tamah means to be astounded, bewildered, or dumbfounded. And we're going to learn in verse 12 and verse 17, that's exactly what happened to Habakkuk. He became dumbfounded. So God has an instrument of discipline that he's going to apply. Look at verse 6. He says, for look, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Remember, Chaldeans is just another name for Babylonians. The bitter and impetuous nation, the one who walks through the spacious places of earth to take possession of dwellings not belonging to it. They are dreadful and awesome. Their justice and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are more swift than leopards. They're more menacing than wolves at dusk. Their horsemen gallop. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle that is swift to devour. All of them come for violence, their faces pressing forward. They gather captives like the sin, and they themselves scoff at kings, and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortification, and they heap up earth and take it. Then they sweep like the wind and pass on. They become guilty whose might is their God. So let's look at these verses a little more in detail. So he begins by describing the destruction coming from the Babylonians, and God drops a bombshell on them. This was the furthest thing from Habakkuk's mind. He's, I think Habakkuk, probably in his myopic view, is hoping that God will zap a few of the corrupt officials and do something. Uh, that God will uh, bring some kind of judgment only on the wicked people, but keep the righteous people comfortable and safe, and that, that, so that they shouldn't have to suffer. Because I know that's what I would be thinking. That's what I would like to see happen. 
and yet God drops a bombshell that he's going to use the wicked Chaldeans or the wicked Babylonians to come and judge the entire nation. And guess what? The righteous will suffer along with the wicked. So sin had been abounding all too long in Judah, but quite frankly, uh, the sins of Judah uh, still made them look like uh, whitewashed saints compared to what the Babylonians had done. Babylon was known for its violent impulses. Now, you've got to understand, people were exceptionally cruel back then. The Assyrians, for example, when they, they captured somebody, they would cut off of their, the king and all the officials or the people they had captured, they would cut off their thumbs and big toes. So you can't do a whole lot without thumbs, okay? That opposable thumb deal is really a big deal. You can't grab onto things well without a thumb. And then they cut off their big toes because, believe it or not, that big toe is really important to your balance. And if you cut off your big toe, it can affect your walking. And today when somebody has to have that done, they have to have a, a prosthetic or something in to help them uh, develop the balance that they, they lost because of that. So Babylonians made the Assyrians look like uh, gentlemen. Uh, they, they took cruelty uh, to a fierce and pitiless level. And God affirms to Habakkuk, he calls them that ruthless or bitter, uh, uh, it's the Hebrew word mar from, you remember the, the waters of Marah in the Old Testament, which means bitterness. It's, it's a ruthless or bitter people. They're impetuous, they're swift. Uh, Ezekiel called Babylon a ruthless nation. No, he used a word, aris, which means uh, terror striking. And, and their conduct matched their, their character. They swept across the whole earth to plunder and possess. And that pretty well meant the known world at that time. And Babylon did conquer many of the nations around it, including Assyria and Judah and Egypt and Edom. And basically Judah is like uh, dust that's going to be vacuumed up by uh, Babylon. So the destruction is coming from the Babylons. Now, we're given a very replete description of the Babylonians. So listen to the kind of people who are. First of all, their history. You may have forgotten this little detail, but back in the book of Genesis, uh, God, first of all, calls Terah, which is Abram's father, and tells him to get out of Ur of the Chaldees. And uh, Terah and Abram left and were on their way, and then they stop in a city called Charon, and they stayed there for a while. And finally, uh, his, uh, his uh, dad, Terah, and uh, his uh, brother just got so enamored with Karen that they stayed there. They liked the good life. But Abram got called a second time by God. This time the call was to get away from his father and his father's family and leave and, and travel toward uh, Canaan. To travel toward what would become known as the promised land. But the, the Chaldeans were in southern Mesopotamia. They're referred to in Jeremiah as an ancient nation. And basically because... Uh, uh, Abram came out from there, but his father and other relatives stayed in that area. They're kind of distant cousins <laughs> to Israel and Judah. But look what he says about their status. He says they are a law unto themselves. In other words, they don't abide by anybody's law. They don't have anybody's authority over them. They do what they will, and they're so powerful that nobody can question what they're going to do. They've become a law to themselves, and they glorify themselves. They promote their own honor. Uh, so they, they not only take you over, but then they insist you pay them tribute. And they insist that you worship their leaders. And they insist that you glorify them. They're without rival. You can't stand against them. So their status is significant. Their speed is also significant. In verse 8, he says, these are people that have horses and they're faster than leopards. Now, a leopard's not as fast as a cheetah, but they're still 
remarkably fast. And I, I, Brother Steve, I'd rather take my chances with a bull shark any day than to be chased by a leopard. Uh, so uh, the, they, they're swifter than leopards. It means they're fierce, they're fast, they're excellent hunters. They're fiercer than wolves. And at dusk when it's just starting to really get dark and all of a sudden they're, they're fiercer than, uh, than wolves who are hungry and hunting by the pack and ready to pounce at any time. And then he says, and, and the translation I read, you said eagle, but the Hebrew word here is more the word of a vulture. Probably refers to the griffin vulture that they would have been very familiar with. And this isn't the kind of turkey vulture that we see that just swoops down each dead carry. And this is the kind of vulture that uh, goes higher and higher sailing on wind currents. And then they can descend at nearly 200 miles an hour because they've spotted a rabbit or they've spotted prey. And they fly down at 200 miles an hour and they grab that prey before they ever knew what hit them. Uh, and some of these are small enough to grab a whole uh, lamb or a small sheep or something and carry them back uh, to their nest and, and kill them. So it's just amazing what they can do. So he says they're fast. And, and they've been successful. That's the other problem. There's just basically no hope of stopping the Babylonians. Uh, they came bent on violence. They had an entire military force. They're going to be engaged in the invasion, and it's going to be irresistibly victorious. Uh, if you've studied the book of Revelation, studied end-time prophecy, and you know that China is one of the major players in that end-time prophecy, and they have the largest army. They can boast an army of, uh, what is it, 200 million people today. Uh, we're talking about kind of uh, foot infantry, uh, people on the ground, and that's a huge, huge uh, number of people. So, you know, should we be looking abroad? Should we be looking at that threat and uh, thinking what they could do if they get an upper hand? The second line in, in verse 9, it says their hordes advance like a desert wind. It's the idea that they would get these winds out of the east uh, uh, in Judah. They would come in and they'd be hot, fierce winds. They'd come across the desert plains. Uh, they would cause vegetation to wilt. And when they got these bad east winds, especially when there's a time of drought, it would just totally destroy the vegetation. And he says, these people are like the hot, fierce wind. It comes up just like that. It goes on for a length of time, and it leaves in its wake utter destruction. By the way, these east winds are a big deal in Scripture. It's referred to at least four times in other places. Uh, Jeremiah eighteen seventeen, for example, says, Like the wind from the east, I'll scatter them from where the enemy. I'll show them my back and not my face in the day of their disaster. Ezekiel seventeen ten says, Look, though it's planted, will it prosper? When the east wind strikes it, will it not dry up completely? On the garden bed of vegetation, it will dry up. And there's several other passages I could have quoted there as well. So the enemy is going to come like a whirlwind, and it's going to gather prisoners like sand. And he's talking about, uh, you know, if you gather up a bunch of sand in a whirlwind, it's like the number of grains of sand. That's the number of captives they're going to be. It's just going to be that devastating. And then they're scoffing. Now, verse 10 took me a while to process. I read it again and again and again before I finally got the... The, the gist of the meaning. But, but basically, these people are so confident in their own strength that they scoff at kings and they ridicule rulers. And so they would take uh, their captives and make public spectacles, particularly of the king and those in authority. So the Assyrians did this too. Uh, there are in, uh, engravings on the walls of, of tombs and whatnot of uh, kings being led along, uh, chained to the back of a chariot, and they're being dragged through the street as a public spectacle to show everyone that this king's been defeated. Interesting enough, in the book of Revelation, it says that uh, when, when the final victory is done, 
that Jesus is taking all the, the, the devil and all the demons of hell and he's going to drag them around heaven for one final display before casting them into the lake of fire forever, showing that he's won uh, the victory for them. Uh, and, and so here we have this idea that there's, they make public spectacles, they're brutal. Uh, just the, the way they treated Zedekiah in Second Kings is, is a good example of that. Uh, they killed Zedekiah's sons before him. They made him watch as they killed his sons. And then, with that vision still firmly in his memory, they, they burnt out his eyes. So the last thing Zedekiah ever would see would be the murder of his sons before him. Then he's bound in shackles and they took him as a prisoner to Babylon. Tells all that in Second Kings chapter 25. But the Babylonians not only scoffed at their foes, they scoffed at the, the walled cities. Uh, back then, people would build a wall, and they thought things were impregnable. The walls of Babylon, by the way, were uh, about 120 feet high, and they were wide enough that you could put four chariots side by side. So they're at least 32 feet thick, probably more like 33, 34 feet thick. And so you think if you build a wall, it's 120 feet high and 34 feet thick, and Babylon obviously is uh, an example of an extremely well-built wall and protection. But Babylon... Uh, was destroyed because you'll remember that there was a river that came under the wall and King Darius was able to stop up that river and go in the riverbed underneath the wall into the city. So walls didn't matter. Uh, Well, the Babylonians, walls didn't matter much to them either. Back then they had a a technique called the siege ramp. As far as I know, this has been used even in more modern history, but they they would build a siege ramp, and if there was a wall there, they would build a pile of dirt and things and maybe ruins from another city that they had conquered that was nearby, and they would pile that up so that they could literally go up the ramp and go over the wall. The thing is, the Babylonians uh, didn't just heap up earth. They had a, a method for building a siege ramp quickly, and they had developed it to an art form. So it didn't matter how well protected your city was, it was only a matter of time Babylon was inside your walls and so they scaffed at these walls and then there's some real sacrilege here Uh, this is the verse that's really a little hard to interpret then they sweep like the wind and pass on they become guilty whose might is their God so they're like the east wind come in fast destroy things and leave before you've even known what's happened but they'd have a major flaw what is that major flaw they trust in their own strength the Babylonians didn't even need a God (laughs) They just, their strength was their God. You've you've heard the old saying, might is right. You know, you've got enough power, then whatever you say is right because you've got the strength and you can force your will on anybody. But to the Babylonians, might wasn't just right, might was divine. They thought themselves to be gods because of their strength and because of their victory. And of course, you remember, who's, who's the most famous Babylonian all of you can remember? King what? Nebuchadnezzar. And remember, he went out one day and he built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, He had uh, conquered all these other peoples. And he goes out one day and he's looking at the Hanging Gardens he'd built for his wife. And he's looking at the huge city that he had built that he could see from his palace balcony. And he says, look at this great thing I have done. And next thing you know, he's chomping on grass. Because God humbled him. And I believe we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. I'm convinced Nebuchadnezzar had a conversion because he exalted and gave glory to the Lord Most High after seven years of, of eating grass. But their sacrilege was they gave no glory to any God. They glorified themselves. They trusted in their own strength. And by the way, that's going to be the undoing 
of a lot of the wicked who God is using right now to chastise a nation, chastise Christians who are not making Jesus Christ their first love, chastise Christians who have got caught up into worldly materialism instead of uh, sharing Jesus Christ with others. He's chastising a nation that has uh, disregarded the life of the unborn. He is judging a nation that has thrust God out of the public square. I tell you what, uh, I don't have a whole lot of politicians that are heroes, but uh, I appreciate that Texas has a lieutenant governor who is bold in his faith for Jesus Christ, who quotes scriptures in his newsletters. And I, I just think that Dan Patrick and I would be good friends if we ever had the chance to meet uh, in person. I, it takes a lot of courage this day and time to stand up for Christ in the public square, and there's not that many that actually do that thing. But there was a, a sacrifice. So what have, what have we learned in the time we've spent in this first question, this first answer from God? And you notice I didn't get to the solution. We don't get to the solution until chapter 3, to all the questions. What's the reason behind it all? But, but look at this. Here are the things we do know. When we think God's ignoring the evil around us, he does, in fact, have a plan. I'm, I take some comfort from that. I take some comfort from the fact that a God who loved me so much that he let his only son, Jesus Christ, die on a cross for me, who died in my place, who took my punishment for me simply because he loved me, not because I was worth anything, not because he could, by foreknowledge, look ahead and see that I was going to make all the right choices and I was going to be this good looking at this age and decide that, some of you are laughing, don't do that, I can see you behind your mask, uh, you know, that that he would save me. He just showed mercy toward me because that's his, his character. He showed mercy toward me that I don't deserve, that I'll never deserve. And it's comforting to me to know that a, guy, that a God that loves me that much has a plan because I know somewhere in that plan is my good because he loves me as his child. But that plan might involve using wicked men to accomplish his purpose. Romans 13 tells us that whether you won the election fair and square or not, there are no powers that be, but they be of God. He sets up one ruler and he puts down another. And how he allows that to happen is not for us to question. Uh, we're to carry out our Christian duties and we're to keep the law as long as it doesn't uh, go against the teachings of Scripture. And we're to be good citizens in spite of the fact that our own government is not composed of good citizens at many times or that we have people devoid of character or moral compass. By the way, in Scripture, it says that the first judgment that comes on a nation who's gone away from the Lord is not that they get a bad king. It's that they get bad judges. Judges are the first thing that goes. And when you start seeing a bunch of liberal judges coming in and making liberal decisions, then that's a sign that God is beginning to to judge your nation. And uh, what we have had that for many decades. Now, the last four years, we had a lot of good judges, and that's good, but we're still heavily weighted toward the other direction. Judges that legislate from the bench rather than, than just judge the, the, uh, the, whether something is legal, whether it's constitutional. And then, and then there's a foreign nation who may care nothing for your lives. And the fact is, I, I, I don't know what I was watching some, some months ago. I was watching a a show, uh, oh, no, it's, 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 a, it's a newer show that came out, and there's a discussion about the rules of war. 
Now, we used to have the Geneva Convention. We had other things that basically when you went to war against another nation, there were certain rules you went by. There's certain things you didn't do to captives of the other nations. There's certain things that weren't allowed in warfare. And, and we've even signed treaties with other countries. We'll never use chemical warfare on them, and we're supposed to have destroyed all those things. And, and yet we find out that Saddam Hussein didn't live by that. He, he came out with... Uh, chemical warfare, and, but there are foreign nations who are simply not going to live by the rules of war. War wasn't meant to be fair, and so it's not going to be fair. See, the enemy can be overwhelming, and they might trust in their own might, but God's still on the throne. And that's the, that's the culmination of what we've learned today. It doesn't matter who's in office. Uh, our trust can't be in who's president who's in control of the Senate or who's in control of the House of Representatives. In fact is, you know, I've got a good guess that two years from now, House of Representatives will probably shift a lot, maybe in, in rebellion against the powers that be. But the point is, it doesn't matter. Uh, you should pray for godly leaders. You should look for godly leaders. You should look for men that have a moral compass. You should look for people that are truly heroic in, in their faith, in their expression of their faith, who are men of character, and they're just getting hard to find. It's been a long time since we had an election where there was someone of genuine character running for president that didn't have a bunch of moral flaws uh, in him. Um, that breaks my heart that men like that are so hard to, to find. But you know what? God's still on his throne. God's still in strong. And what we're going to do when we get to Habakkuk 3, if you want to go read Habakkuk 3 in advance, you'll see the encouragement. But basically, Habakkuk's going to ask all these questions. We're going to hear all of God's answers. And at the end, Habakkuk's going to say, hey, even if the olive trees don't make olives anymore, even if the, the figs don't make, fig trees don't make figs anymore, even if there's no uh, cattle being born anymore, even if the fruit of the vine if it's all withered up and it dies, yet will I praise the Lord. I love that verse in Habakkuk chapter 3. Maybe that will be next month's memory verse for us. Uh, but God is still on his throne. So uh, I'm going to ask Brother Steve. He's going to come and lead us in a song. But let me just point out there's going to be a problem. Sometimes when we ask God a question and he answers it, it just leads to more questions. You ever done that with your kids? They ask you a question, you try to answer it, and then they're like, uh, but how does this happen? They, they go further. So Habakkuk asks why God's doing nothing about the evil in this situation. God says, I'm going to use the Babylonians. So next lesson, the question is, God, why would you use such wicked people to accomplish your purposes? What I'd like to maybe do while Brother Steve is leading us in this song is if, if you, like me, are kind of discouraged by the news or maybe you have other challenges in your life that you've been praying for for a long time and you think, God, why won't you answer me? I wonder if this wouldn't be a good time to just get on our knees before God and say, God, <coughs> we don't understand your ways. We don't understand your timing. But Lord, thank you that you still love me. Thank you that you're still on your throne. That's what I'm going to tell God while I'm up here. Maybe you join me. Brother Steve.